This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We're back in 1 Peter today, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, which is a continuation of the thoughts uh, from chapter 1. We briefly touched on it in our last discussion. But remember, Peter's great concern is for Christians abroad who are suffering persecution And he wants to shore up their faith by reminding them of God's promises and how they came to claim those promises for their for their own. And so a large part of chapter one, as we noticed a week ago, is doing that very thing and establishing from the outset this identity Christians have as exiles or sojourners in this world, just waiting to go waiting to go home, looking forward to going home, even if they have to suffer here for their faith. And we won't revisit all of those points, uh, but I would encourage you to listen to the previous podcast if you, if you haven't already. But as Peter does that and reminds us of those wonderful things that God has in store for us, uh, he also reminds us of our responsibility in, in light of those promises. Uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1. And and that begins the practical instruction Peter has for us of of being obedient and being holy and being living up to the calling with which we've been called. And in the course of making that point, encouraging us to to be holy, to be like God, he brings up the, uh, the catalyst for that, I guess you could call it, and which is the, the word of God. And so he reminds us at the end of chapter one that it was by our obedience to that word, we were purified, verses 22 and 23. You have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And so then your response to that truth should be to desire it and long for it and recognize its, its value and that is the thought that carries into to chapter 2. Again, we briefly touched upon that, but that's where Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Uh, so progression is a, a big part of, of Peter's book. Not only should Christians remain stalwart and hold fast to the faith, but what that means is that you, you actually grow in spite of suffering and persecution. And let me just make this, I I said this in our last podcast, but I'll I'll make this point again, that in verses two and three of chapter one, where Peter is reminding us our identity in Christ and how we are these sojourners, he says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from, from the dead. And then in verses 22 and 23, he evokes that same, he uses that same language again. In verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So he's not saying we're born again in two different ways or we're born again to a living hope in two different ways. Uh, no, he's he's explaining later in that chapter, he's reminding us later in the chapter how it is that we came to have claim these promises of God for ourselves, why we can have so much joy and anticipation of heaven and looking forward to Jesus' return and and bear up under suffering because 
we have submitted to his will. We, we've obeyed the truth. And in light of that, he promises those who do so to, to give them a home, that they can be with him forever and to bless them here, here and now. And so that's what's carrying forward into to, uh, to chapter 2. So notice the, the, the language of being born again or this new birth, uh, like newborn infants, chapter 2 and verse 2. Now he says, grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is is good, uh, so there's a lot of things happening here. But again, I want to reinforce that point from the outset that not only is this a call to be uh, grounded and, and stand firm in the faith, but to grow. Really, what that means is continuing to make progress. And it's not an esoteric, complicated kind of thing. It's not a mysterious kind of thing. What Peter is saying is, read your Bible, do what it says, and you will find yourself growing along along the way. And like other Bible writers, uh, Peter will, will put growth or uh, uh, fellowship with God and, and drawing closer to Christ in terms of a, an experience and specifically that of uh, food, right? He calls the the word milk, the pure milk of the word, and that we're grow, we're growing up. And he says, if you've if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is is good, you, you'll go about this, and or, or this will happen rather. Uh, so those who follow through with these instructions are going to come to know the goodness of God more and more. They're going to know the transformative power. Of truth, and this is how one tastes the kindness of the Lord. You know what? Much of the, I think even you know, pseudo religious world would say, experiencing God. All right, if we want, that's not the, that's not the Bible's terminology. But if we just wanted to borrow, kind of that pseudo religious terminology, the closest that Scripture comes to that is is this: is saying, taste that the Lord is good. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's not. Again, waiting for a religious kind of experience or something that's going to be uh, unique to you in your life. But again, it's very concrete and simple. And that is, you look at the Word of God. You you, you feed upon the, the Word of God. And Peter is not alone in using that, that metaphor. And so it's not as, you know, and that I think for a lot of people takes the I don't know if you want to call it glamour or luster or, or maybe even like pride that you can take in having a you know unique religious experience, and I think I've I you know as I've discussed this with other people they feel like that that kind of robs God or robs their uh, life of of something, but but it doesn't really, um, because God has made it so simple and beautiful and and as uncomplicated as, as possible. The way that Paul put it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, when he expressed his concern for them for a different reason, he says, I, I'm concerned that some of you are abandoning the faith, uh, abandoning the simplicity and purity of devotion to the truth, is what he says. And so again, it's not, it's not complicated, right? The, the writer's... New Testament writers will speak of tasting the heavenly gift, tasting the good word of God, 
coming to know God more deeply. And but they always associate that with not an not a you know glamorous experience, if you want to think of it that way, but always it's always grounded in knowing God through his word, coming to know the power of God through his word and being changed by it. So I don't want to be a hypocrite, neither do you. I don't want to relinquish my hope. I don't want to relinquish you know, my anticipation of, of heaven, and neither do you. And the key, I believe, Peter is putting before us to, to avoid that is, is Bible reading, Bible studying, and then turning that into Bible living. Be holy as he is holy. Uh, you know, that's that's the way one preacher put it a long time ago. Let's make Bible reading, Bible living. And that's a biblical principle. You know, you think about, you know, every great example of faith, whether you, you know, you have that list in Hebrews 11, or you're thinking of others that uh, may be coming to mind. Ezra is a classic example because of what it says about him in Scripture that, he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. In Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so this shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the responsibility that we have to remain in God's grace and, and cling to our hope and you know, continue, continue really to have joy in him because our joy is rooted in the anticipation of heaven and our, and our hope is gone with Christ in, into heaven. That's, that's where it resides that we, we keep those things only in so far as we hold fast to his, his truth. Right. You know, which means, which is a manifestation of truly loving him, right. To truly love God means I seek his will and and seek to do his will. But I can't keep it if I don't know it, and I can't know it if I don't take the time to, to read it and study it. And so like Ezra, we have to set our hearts to do so. And that's what Peter is saying for us to do, to long for this pure milk of the word, which means to, to diligently seek the knowledge of, of God. And this is something, too, that he'll keep returning to, and it's actually how he ends his second letter, Remember in Second Peter three eighteen that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of of Christ, not as an end in and of itself, but as he says here, so that we can grow in respect to salvation, that we can apply it and teach it and come to be more and more like more like Christ. Okay, let's continue reading here in First uh, Peter two. So he says, uh, you have come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and, pre- and precious. Uh, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So let's pause right there for a moment just to notice this. He's 
he's shoring up our faith by reassuring us of our identity. And again, it's connected to verse eight, obedience to, to God's word that we have this, this new metaphor being offered here by Peter um, as uh, uh, picturing God's people as a temple, right? A, a temple that is built upon the one cornerstone God has chosen. And that is, that is Christ. And so, that that should move us to act accordingly is what Peter is ultimately calling us to do, right? He says, you're a chosen race, verse 9, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have this new hope, this new identity, this new relationship to God, and now we're to tell others about it regardless of how they respond to us or how they may be treating us or what we're suffering here and now we are uh, to to win as many as we can in the spirit of christ uh, and and his father who doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance uh, as peter will say in the second letter second peter 3 9 so same idea here as this new people of god uh, uh, receiving his grace and mercy that what it means to live as an exile and sojourner here, at least in part is to teach others about this hope that you have teach others about salvation in Christ, proclaim his excellencies. And Peter has drawn upon old Testament language before as we studied last week, right, and in, in, in calling God's people's exiles, you know, pilgrims, foreigners, etc., right, that that is how Abraham is referred to in Scripture and Israel, and then later that that is uh, Israel as Jacob's, uh, excuse me, uh, Abraham's offspring, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then later the nation of Israel also is spoken of in, in those terms, and so he's doing the same thing here with God's new covenant people. And and he's continuing to draw upon Old Testament language and imagery. We're, we are the temple now. Christians are the living temple. There's not a physical building somewhere uh, that God has declared to be holy and set apart for his use. But it's, it's people. It's people have entered into fellowship with him. Uh, and so in, in light of that, uh, we should act accordingly and Think about the the purpose that God has called us to fulfill. And now he gives this more practical instruction in light of, uh, or rather with regard to our relationship to unbelievers in verse 12. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, so specifically addressing persecution and you know mocking or ostracizing or how whatever attacks you know may be leveled against you uh, peter is saying uh you know so what keep keep doing what you're doing keep your conduct excellent so that really there's no legitimate grounds for people to accuse they may they may accuse you but there's no substance to it and notice the effect that that will have uh, he says in verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's kind of a shorthand way of saying you can 
have such a profound influence and effect upon them by being stalwart that they they will join you and they will glorify God with you when he when he returns uh, is what I understand Peter to be saying uh, and this is something that he um, brings up again and with the relationship regarding husbands and wives in, in chapter three that we'll talk about later uh, but he first he wants to deal with uh, civil authorities, our relationship to civil authorities, our relationship to, um, we might say our employers. He he uses the term slaves and masters, but I guess the, you know, the closest parallel we would have to that would be, you know, just our our responsibility in, in the workplace, just day to day day to day living. Uh, so with civil authorities, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Uh, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the, the emperor. Uh, so, Pretty clear, I believe, in that context, he's talking about civil or governmental authorities and how Christians should respond and even, you know, bear up under the persecution of, of bad ones. That human government is not evil in and of itself, but it's actually sanctioned by God. Romans 13, Paul addresses this as, as, as well. But our responsibility is to uh, submit insofar as submitting does not bring us into conflict with doing the the will of God. And that, of course, is the one big big caveat that we have to keep in mind. Right, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than, than men. Uh, but this is part and parcel of, this is at least part of the way that we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles is by uh, submitting to human authorities uh, first in government, which is an unpopular doctrine, right? Um, but Peter is speaking to people who are living in the time of the Roman Empire, right? Of a supreme single individual who calls the shots. Um, but he says whether it's king or emperor, whatever, to governor, he he names even. And so, you know, by extension, then, uh, you know, our obviously our government, our system is not exactly the, the same. But we could go on to say presidents, legislative bodies um, as those sanctioned by by God, and not the specific government or this or even the specific ruler who may be in charge of the time, but just the uh, the concept of human government and law. And none of this is to say that man's laws are equal to God's or, or anything like that, or that man's standards somehow supplant God's, uh, you know, like none of that. But Christians are to be marked by their humility and their willingness to submit insofar as submitting does not contradict what God has decreed. Notice verse 13, Christians are to be subject for the Lord's sake. And then again, verse 15, indeed, this is the will of God. So the reason for this submission, the reason 
uh, for this, you know, yielding to human authorities is ultimately for God's glory. And Peter says to silence the criticism of unbelievers, right? Who are, who are slandering God's people as insurrectionists or subversive or, uh, you know, anti this or anti that this is to, to prove to them or to show them first of all, God's glory, but also that, to any fair and honest observer, there's no grounds for uh, persecuting God's people, accusing them of, of evil. And so the ignorance of foolish men will be silenced. And this is something that Peter had experienced personally. Like he knew. Now, I, I don't know if he's thinking about his personal experience as he's writing this. He's, you know, he's given the words by the Holy Spirit. But remember in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 14 and 15, and then again in Acts 24 later, where you have God's people being brought before in that case it's a Jewish court <clears throat> uh, but there's no they there's no grounds for accusing they bring him there they they and they even whip them and they try to punish them but they can't find any grounds for uh, legitimate imprisonment or execution now sometimes that didn't matter they would just go ahead and do it anyway uh, but the point is in scripture is that uh, this is again by honest and and fair observers of what's going on in the world, uh, this made an impression upon them. Uh, they had nothing to say in opposition, right? As Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 that I referenced um, are, are going about teaching Jesus and, and, and preaching the truth. They're healing people, right? They have the power to perform miracles. And men see this, and verse 14 says they have nothing to say in opposition, and they just commanded them to leave. And they, you know, have a powwow with one another. And they're saying, what, verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? Nobody can deny what they're doing. This, this powerful work that's been performed through them, nobody can deny that. And so they say, so that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them. So this is the, at least at that point in time, the best that they could, they could hope for was to give this verbal warning. And, and then later, of course, they bring them in and, and beat them and stone them. But that's there for our learning. And you see the impact that has on the, the people um, uh, observing these events unfold. And I think Peter is saying the same can be true for us. Uh, we can have that kind of influence. You know, this single instruction folds into what should be a larger pattern of service and honor to all, to all people, right? Because Peter's just saying, fear God, love the brotherhood, uh, su submit to human authority, honor the emperor, honor everyone, verse 17. So this particular instruction with regard to the, the government is just, an out, and that should be a natural outgrowth of who a Christian already is. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, Christians are are doormats for everyone, but because that they're slaves for Christ, they're seeking to to be at peace with all men, right? Um, more often than not, submitting to God means submitting to men. Um, and yes, again, that doesn't invalidate that we must obey God rather than men. But you think about uh, what Paul was willing to do to. Uh, reach people as he describes in First Corinthians nine, how 
you know, he says, I've become a slave to all men so that for Christ's sake I might win some. As to the Jews, I became a Jew, as a Gentile, a Gentile, and, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so there was that that disposition within him as a Christian to uh, find some way to serve others and, and in so doing, ultimately win them to Christ. You know, you think about um, Timothy, you know, Tim, um, Timothy is circumcised, right? So he has a Jewish mom and a Greek dad, but in order to make him more palatable to the Jews, uh, Paul has him circumcised and Timothy is willing to do that. Uh, and that's, you know, that's no small sacrifice, right? He didn't have to because it's not part of the gospel. It's not required for salvation. And in, in another context, Paul will oppose, like Titus, for example, he would not allow Titus who was another Greek to be uh, circumcised because in that context, people were demanding it um, as a, as a condition for salvation. And so to make the point that it's absolutely not, Paul refused to yield. Um, But in other cases, he did it to maybe open a door that would otherwise not be open for, for the gospel. And so all of that to say, Again, Peter's particular instruction to us about our relationship to government really shouldn't come as a surprise and, and really is aligned with the you know the disposition of humility and service that we should already have as Christians as we're trying to win others to God. Um, and he says, we're, you know you're free. He says, don't you use your don't use your freedom as a covering for for evil. Men may oppress you, but remember, as a child of God, you have the best freedom that there is, and that's freedom from sin. Uh, so we don't want to use our that freedom or, or, or say that because our master is in heaven or, uh, you know, again, we must obey God rather than men. We don't ever want to try to subvert that or, or shoehorn it into a rebellion kind of j- just for the sake, because we disagree with uh, a law or a tax that we that we don't like, right? And, and I think we can, you know, easily reason ourselves into those positions. And I think part of that, you know, the the warning here uh, captures some of those, you know, kind of mental gymnastics we we tend to to perform to justify any number of things. You know, there's a lot of things that people will try to justify in the name of what they call, you know, quote, Christian liberty or freedom. And we can't name them all here, but we could put certainly put that one on the list, right? Rebelling against, you know, an elected official online or anywhere else or, you know, passing on scurrilous forms of uh, uh, abuse in an email or something like that because, again, we, we just happen to not like um, a new law that's going to, adversely affect us financially or something like that. So I I think that as Christians, we have to be very careful in those regards and heed Peter's instructions to show honor even to unbelievers that that is part of our duty to fear God, verse 17. So lastly, let's consider the one more relationship Peter deals with. He, He deals with others, but... Let's consider the relationship between uh, servants and masters in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, so Peter takes a moment to address another aspect of the social order, specifically that of slave and master. And, you know, we don't really have time to go into, you know, the, I guess the elements of first century slavery, um, as opposed to that, that was practiced in the American continent. You know, it was something that wasn't racially based. And in some cases, people even voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. First uh, Corinthians seven twenty three. But slavery in any age could be a brutal affair. And Peter recognizes this, and he even um, talks about unjust masters uh, that, that, that are not gentle. And so just as he called Christians to be submissive in the face of slanderous abuse, even from civil authorities, he's calling upon Christians who are slaves to be submissive, even in the face of, I think, physical abuse, verses 18 through 20. And I say that because of what he, um, who he holds up as our example, and that is Christ, who suffer, who also suffered a great deal of physical abuse uh, for the sake of others. Uh, verse 21, that he did this, leaving us an, an example. So Peter's drawing upon descriptions from Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, right? No deceit was found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9, he did not revile in return. Verse 7, he bore our sins. Verse 12, uh, by his wounds you've been healed. Verse 5. So the subjection, even in the face of oppression, I, I think certainly has a physical connotation to it. Um, and that wasn't something that was going to be easy, but it would be rewarded is, I think, Peter's point. Just as Christ was, as he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, and then he was exalted, uh, so too we bear up under those sufferings. If in, in this particular relationship, which of course in, in our time doesn't exist in, in the way that it did in Peter's time, but I think some principles certainly carry over. Um, what Peter calls these slaves to do in impossible circumstances is to is to continue to take up their cross and follow Jesus, just as he had said, knowing that God will someday set things right. Continue to promise that nothing here lasts forever, but the promises of God are sure and eternal, and someday you will be rewarded. And so this is the great motivation that Christians have to bear up under suffering, that we look at our Savior, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, what he endured unjustly and unfairly and un unbelievably for our sake. Peter says, you're straying like sheep. 
but he suffered what he suffered in order for you to be reconciled to him. And so he's reminding us that there's a greater purpose to be served in, in each of these relationships. And that purpose can only be served at the expense of self, right? Um, our, our own energy, our, our own uh, life and, and time and well-being even, uh, that we do those things knowing, bear up under those things knowing that it will all be worth it in the end. Uh, and ultimately for the glory of God. And now Peter has one more specific relationship that he wants to address, um, but we won't get to it this week. We'll wait until our next discussion and regarding husbands and wives, uh, beginning in, in chapter 3. But the these same principles are going to flow down through those verses as, as well as we examine them. Uh, so I appreciate you tuning in uh, this week and continue to study these things, please. And if you're looking for more resources uh, or a way to contact uh, me personally or the Leon Valley Church of Christ, you can do that at leonvalleychurch.org or just send me an email at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com.